Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to our webinar today. Uh, welcome to Missio Nexus. I'm Ed Sherman, host for today's webinar. Thanks for joining us, and you're going to hear uh, Afghan arrivals, big picture, and great commission opportunities presented by Pat Hatch. We believe you find it both relevant and timely to you. As we get started uh, today, let me introduce today's presenter. You can read her bio on our website, and some of you are already familiar with her and what uh, the PCA is doing with resettling refugees. Now, Pat, let me ask you a question. Uh, how are you finding the reception with uh, PCA churches when it comes to resettling Afghan refugees? Thanks, Ed. I'm finding a lot of excitement. I think that the fact that many of our uh, evangelical uh, service people have served in Afghanistan uh, and many of our missionaries have served in Afghanistan have uh, stirred up a lot of interest in serving those Afghans that arrived suddenly in late August and early September. Thanks, Pat. And just as a reminder for everyone, um, uh, at the end, I'll be giving some questions to Pat. If you have any questions, please put them in the, the chat panel. Pat's got a lot of great information and a, a wonderful PowerPoint with lots of great information. Um, she's going to use quite a bit of the time. So rather than interrupt her during the presentation, if you would put them in the chat panel, uh, I'll feed them to her at, at the end. So without further ado, Pat, it's yours. Thank you, Ed. All right. So we'll be, first of all, I'd like to say it's a great honor to be with you folks. And I'm sure that there are many of you participating in as uh, listeners that um, it would have an awful lot to teach me. I am no expert on um, mission to Muslims or on Afghan culture, but the Lord has had me on a particular journey uh, where I have learned a, a bit about the U.S. Re refugee resettlement system and perhaps have an, uh, a perspective that might be helpful as we talk about how to connect with and serve Afghans who've arrived this year. So just to put it in a scriptural context, we know that our God is a God of people on the move. He's always used the movement of people to accomplish his sovereign purposes. Acts 17, 26 and 27 reminds us that one of those purposes is that people might be able to move in order to seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. But that doesn't happen in a vacuum. It only happens if God's people participate with him in his sovereign purpose. So this is a pie chart to try to pr provide a little perspective of the demographics of the foreign born population of the United States. It has to be a snapshot because it's always a moving picture. Every time someone goes through a naturalization ceremony and becomes a US citizen, that slice change. Every, every time someone overstays a visa, they enter the unauthorized immigrants category. So this is a snapshot in uh, 2017. I haven't seen an update for 2021 or two yet. Um, but if you can take a look, you'll see that the largest slice are U.S. citizens who are naturalized. So they're foreign born, but they went through a long process. They had their green cards for five years or three years if they were married to a U.S. citizen. And they uh, went through the process of applying, paid the fee, took the test of U.S. history and government and English, and um, then were sworn in as naturalized citizens. The next largest slice is green card holders, lawful permanent residents. And you will see there is no slice for refugees because refugees very quickly become absorbed in that lawful permanent resident category. They are legally present from day one, but after one year, they are able to get their green card that shows their permanent status. And the slice uh, that is uh, pale orange, is lawful temp temporary residents such as diplomats, people with multinational corporations, people granted temporary protected status. And then the gray area are people who are unauthorized either because they overstayed a visa or because they entered without documents. I truly believe everyone in every one of these slices is created in the image of God and loved by him. And God has his plan, whatever their plan was for coming to the US. How do refugees differ from other immigrants? Well, they didn't choose to leave their country, they were forced to flee. 
usually because of persecution that was targeted at them for reasons of their race, their religion, their nationality, their political opinion, or their membership in a particular social group. If we think about Afghans, we know that if they had a political opinion that was in opposition to the Taliban, they were up absolutely um, targeted as soon as US troops left and even before. And membership in a particular social group could include people such as university professors or student activists or um, women in government, et cetera, journalists for certain if they spoke out against Taliban abuses. Refugees um, usually flee to a nearby country uh, to be interviewed, hope to be interviewed by uh, staff of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees and then go for, through a very long process uh, to be vetted to see if they qualify and if so, um, they may be put in line to come to the US or another resettlement country. A very, very small percentage of refugees are ever um, given the opportunity to resettle in another country. And they may have waited years in that neighboring country for an interview and vetting. So what is the US system for resettling refugees? When the refugee program was officially created in 1980 by the Refugee Act, it was decided that the US Department of State would contract with national nonprofit organizations to resettle refugees. At this point in time, there are nine of them and you can see that many of them are uh, affiliated with denominations. World Relief is affiliated with the National Association of Evangelicals. There is an ethnic organization. There are two non-sectarian organizations, but all nine of them do welcome church volunteers, but in various ways, according to their own, um, their, their own policies. So if you can think of these nine national agencies as uh, Target, Walmart, Home Depot, each of them has an administrative headquarters office that does not do the work of that corporation. So each of these national resettlement agencies has local affiliates around the country. They may have anywhere from half a dozen to 80 or 90 local affiliates around the country. And that's where the rubber touches the road. That's where the actual resettlement of refugees happens. If you go to the website of the Office of Refugee Resettlement in Health and Human Services, you will find this map to find the local um, affiliates closest to you. You would click on your state. Let's say that we clicked on South Carolina and it would bring up this that would show that in the state of South Carolina, there are just two local affiliates of any of the nine national agencies. If you live near, near or in Columbia, South Carolina, then your choice for accessing refugees and serving them would be Lutheran Services of the Carolinas. If you lived in or near Spartanburg, then World Relief would be your choice in Spartanburg. How do these refugee agencies receive most of their funding and why does that matter? Well, they receive it on a per-refugee arrival reimbursement basis. And that matters because the capacity and staffing of any given affiliate in the new year is based on the past year's number of refugees they were able to resettle. And they have very little choice about those numbers. And how does it affect the current situation? Well, refugee arrivals last year were at a historic low and therefore staffing is extremely low. More than 100 local offices of affiliates of national agencies had to close because there simply was not enough reimbursement to pay the rent and keep the lights on, let alone pay staff. Uh, World Relief, for instance, lost nine of their 25 offices. Um, those offices that have remained open were at their lowest staffing and funding levels since the beginning of the program in 1980, at the very moment when Afghans were being airlifted into the United States by the tens of thousands. This chart shows um, two things. One, the blue line shows the annual cap 
on the number of refugees and that's set each year by the president in consultation with the State Department. The orange line shows the number of re refugees that were actually admitted each year. And you can see that they, they generally track pretty close together, but there are several anomalies. One of the anomalies is in fiscal year 2002, and that is because of what happened on September 11th, 2001. There was not a single refugee involved in any way in what happened on 9-11, but the US government thought it prudent to take a look at every single pathway to enter the United States. And so they looked at the refugee program in addition to international student programs, in addition to, in addition to all means of immigration permanent or short term. Uh, so there was a temporary pause to the refugee program, but it began to rebuild after that. But the other anomaly you'll see is in 2021. And you'll see that the cap was raised to 62.5, but the number actually resettled was the lowest since the beginning of the program. There are two reasons for that. One is that COVID travel restrictions were still in place. Um, actually, three reasons. A second reason is because United States Citizenship and Immigration Service that uh, is supposed to do interviews abroad were not sending as many of their staff abroad due to COVID. And then uh, the third um, reason is that um, it was um, simply um, not possible for the agencies that had lost so many staff to staff up quickly. It's very difficult to hire staff on a promise that they will get a salary a year later. So just to summarize, in August 2021, as the airlifts came to the United States, bringing Afghans by the tens of thousands, the local refugee resettlement agencies were at their lowest funding and staffing levels since 1980. Many that had managed to stay open had had to make the tough choice, do we retain a receptionist or do we protect our caseworker? That was an obvious choice. The caseworkers do the work that is absolutely necessary. So they might've let the receptionist go. The next choice they might've had to make was about the volunteer coordinator if they were indeed fortunate enough to have one. Once again, caseworker trumped uh, volunteer uh, coordinators. And so at the time that the Afghans were arriving, many of the local resettlement agencies no longer had a receptionist or a volunteer coordinator. What services are the local resettlement agencies expected to provide? Well, they're contracted with the US Department of State to provide services designed to provide stability until the first job. When the refugee program began in 1980, refugee services went for um, 36 whole months. A refugee arriving would have time to learn English and time to build up to that first job. Um, but then the program was reduced to 18 months, then to 12. Now it's officially at eight, but the reality is that a refugee arriving today would be fortunate if they had the attention of the resettlement agency caseworker for the first four months in the US, because after those four months, they are on to the other new arrivals. But the services are all designed, as I said, to provide stability until that first job. The biggest challenge for the agencies has always been to find housing and to pay the security deposit in the first month's rent. That is a challenge because they're looking for housing that is safe and affordable on a single entry level wage. Because in most of the refugee families, there will only be one wage earner, at least at the beginning. There are often many small children. Um, so they have to find something affordable and sustainable on a single entry uh, level wage. It needs to be accessible to public transportation and jobs. And that's a challenge because um, not all affordable housing is accessible. Um, and uh, so, and, and of course they are renting Trying to, assist, trying to assist a family that has no credit rating in the United States 
no U.S. references. So often the resettlement agency themselves will end up co-signing a lease. Um, but right now there is a tremendous shortage of affordable housing um, units and Afghan families tend to be very large, so they need a minimum of a three bedroom unit. And remember, it has to be sustainable on a single entry level wage. Uh, the agencies are expected to pro provide orientation to life in the US and to the local area. Often that happens on the second or third day that the refugee has been in the local area and it goes by so quickly and the refugees are so traumatized by what came before that very little of it sticks, quite frankly. And so that's a real role that church volunteers can play in helping to provide that orientation at a more um, absorbable speed and um, in such a way that they can perhaps demonstrate some of the things that would be helpful. Uh, the agencies have a special role in helping the uh, refugee arrivals to obtain key documents, such as their social security card, their employment authorization document, maybe a state ID. And they also have a unique role in linking them with key services, such as temporary cash assistance, medical assistance, food stamps, or SNAP. The agencies that govern those programs are usually in the State Department of Human Services, and that's usually where the State Refugee Office is located. Um, arranging for medical appointments, vaccinations, enrolling children in school, and then all important, helping to find the first job. Uh, we need to keep in mind as we progress through the, the, the slides that until recently, the U.S. government has had absolutely no plan B for resettling refugees in the United States. All information for resettlement has gone through those nine national agencies and their local resettlement affiliates. The state refugee offices, as I mentioned, um, will administer the short-term transitional cash assistance and medical assistance programs for the limited period of time that the refugees are eligible. They will also receive funding from the Federal Office of Refugee Resettlement that they can award either to the agencies doing the resettlement or perhaps to community colleges or local organizations for English as a second language and job counseling and placement. And um, there are occasional competitive grants for services such as mental health services I truly wish that each state were receiving some of those funds. What was different with sudden arrival of 75,000 Afghan allies? Well, I mentioned earlier, refugees have to flee first to a neighboring country where they may wait for years to be interviewed for refugee status. So, so far in this presentation, we've been using the term refugees loosely, the way that we would define them as people who have fled from their country. But that is not the status that most Afghans have arrived in. We'll cover that in a minute. But let's say that in a given year, uh, the refugee cap was, was set at 120,000. There is no way that 75,000 of them would arrive in a single month. They would be admitted to the United States in a controlled flow, perhaps 10,000 a month on average until that final month. Uh, but due to the sudden takeover by the Taliban at faster speeds than any of our intelligence services or our, our allies' intelligence services could anticipate, tens of thousands of, ally, of Afghans were airlifted directly to the United States in a matter of days, not months. So you can imagine the effect on the local resettlement agencies who had absolutely no time or funds to staff up to meet the rapidly expanding need. Here are the statuses. Because so few had time to flee to a nearby country where they might apply for refugee status, um, the majority of Afghans arrived with one of these three statuses. So we hear a lot on the news about SIVs, persons who've been granted special immigrant visas. Uh, those were granted to folks who assisted US troops or government contractors or aid organizations for at least one year. 
they had to go through a very um, intense process of application, a lot of paperwork and a lot of documentation, and they had to get sign-offs from the chief of mission and then go through consular processing. Many, many people were in the process of, get, of applying for special immigrant visas who are highly qualified for those visas, but had not yet been able to complete it when the US Embassy in Kabul closed down and no further processing was available. So we're told that fewer than 10,000 of the 75,000 um, arrived with their SIV status complete. Another perhaps 30,000 were in process, so they were admitted as SQSI parolees, parolee meaning temporary, um, in hopes that they would be able to complete that process soon after arrival. But the bulk of the Afghans, more than uh, approximately half, arrived with humanitarian parole status. Now, humanitarian parole is a status that is usually very rarely used. It is used um, in normal times, which this was not, uh, for people who already were the beneficiaries of uh, immigrant visa petitions sponsored by their family members, but were now in an emergent situation. So when a US citizen goes to sponsor their relative, depending on the category of relative, whether it is a spouse or minor child, whether it's a parent, whether it is a, um, an adult child, whether it is a sibling, each of those categories has caps each year, plus each country has caps. So for instance, if you had a neighbor from Eritrea and they uh, were a US citizen and they had a brother um, who uh, they wanted to sponsor, uh, they would be under the sibling category. Let's say they submitted the application, it was approved, and then they checked the State Department bulletin to find out what priority date was currently being processed. And they would find that the priority date currently being processed is seven years ago, someone approved seven years ago. But that's not the whole story. That priority date is only advancing a week in a month's time. So you multiply that out and it may be 28 years before that sibling of a US citizen is able to get a visa. It's like going into the deli, pulling a number to get your sandwich and you get number 365,438 until everyone ahead of you in the visa line gets their visa, you do not. The initial eligibility chart that came out was devastating for humanitarian parolees because it showed that they were going to be eligible for absolutely no refugee benefits, no mainstream benefits. And parolees are only granted status for either one year or two year, after which they either have to return to their homeland or find another way to stay in the United States. So what's the current status for Afghan humanitarian parolees? Thankfully, Congress paid attention and realized that um, humanitarian admissions needed to be given some transitional benefits. So they made humanitarian parolees eligible for refugee benefits and some safety net benefits. They uh, passed the Afghan Supplemental Appropriations Act, which gave some funds that could be used specifically for humanitarian parolees. However, what they did not do was adjust the fact that humanitarian parolees are still only allowed to stay in the U.S. for either one or two years, seven months of which have already passed if they arrived in August, and they have no pathway to green cards or U.S. citizenship. They've been told to apply for asylum in the United States, but there are several problems with that. One problem is the asylum system is already backlogged for more than four years. Someone applying today whose uh, application was accepted, would get a court date four and a half years from now. Plus the fact that asylum is granted only to people who can prove and document the fact that they were in particular danger because of one of the protected grounds. And for many Afghans, those very documents went up in smoke as they tried to get through to the planes in Kabul airport. Even their American friends and 
uh, perhaps the um, American military will, were telling them to burn any documents that showed that they worked with the US government, to burn any documents to show that they were targeted by the Taliban because otherwise the Taliban at the checkpoints would not allow them through. So the very documents that would help to establish a case for asylum are now missing. What is needed? Congress really needs to act to pass an Afghan Adjustment Act. I'm sure it is not the intent of the US government to send Afghans back into Afghanistan at this time, but there's very little foresight that seems to be happening. So more support is needed from leg legislators on a bipartisan bill. Uh, Co-sponsors are needed to um, on legislation that would make it possible for humanitarian parolees to be able to adjust to legal permanent resident status. And whether or not Congress acts, we know that we have our uh, orders, not our recommendations. Our savior has told us that we are to love our neighbor and he has said that he was a stranger and someday I expect he'll be asking us, I was that stranger, did you welcome me? Where were most of the Afghans initially taken? They were initially taken to military bases around the country. And where they were taken bore no resemblance to where they would initially be resettled. Indeed, where most, when most of the planes took off, no one knew where each of those families would eventually land in the United States. The reason that they were taken to any particular military base was because they checked with the Department of Defense and found that it had barracks available. And so they went to whichever uh, military base said, yes, we can receive that flight and we will prepare the barracks for that many of um, the Afghans. Right now, all of the military bases have closed down their Afghan operations with the accept of, exception of Fort Dix, which is being kept open for the next month or so for those that are flying in from the US military bases abroad. We know that there were some flights that were not cleared to come directly to the United States. Um, they may have been sponsored by um, veterans who wanted to get out their interpreters, um, but they did not have US government clearance to resettle, uh, to bring them to the United States. So they were uh, allowed to, um, land at some of the US military bases abroad, such as the one in Doha, Qatar. And uh, so Fort Dix is being kept open. We're told during the next few weeks, um, most of the Afghans that will be resettled in the United States from those bases abroad will be brought in. This was an initial map of where in the country uh, the Afghans were expected to arrive. Um, you can see that a lot were expected in California and in Texas and Northern Virginia, in Michigan. There were a few states like Wyoming and South Dakota that were not expected to receive any. A few states such as Alabama and Mississippi expected to receive only a few. But keep in mind that the Afghans are uh, free to settle wherever they would like. But if they want the help of a resettlement agency, then they need to go where they are assigned to a resettlement agency, at least for those first eight months. And many of them have stated that they want to go to Sacramento because they hear it's a beautiful place and there's a big Afghan community there. However, Sacramento has very expensive housing and their capacity is totally overwhelmed. So they may be resettled then in another uh, area of the United States. But where have they been sent as the bases closed down and why? Well, due to the severe shortage of safe housing units, large enough for big families near public transportation and jobs and key, sustainable on a single entry level wage. Let's say someone is able to find a job 40 hours a week at $12 an hour. So if you multiply that out, they're getting less than $2,000 a month. And after taxes, more like maybe 1,800. And uh, where are you going to find an apartment that they can sustain on maybe $1,000 a month? So they have at least 800 left for the other expenses their family is going to occur, incur. 
So many who are sent to local communities from the US military bases um, were sent temporarily to extended stay hotels. And that was meant to be for 30 days or less, but because the agencies are scrambling to find apartments, many have been in those hotels for several months while the resettlement agency tries desperately to find other appropriate housing. So this Afghan situation is a unique, unprecedented in our time opportunity for the Church of Christ to demonstrate his love to many from unreached people groups who are now within reach of our local churches at a very time when the resettlement agencies are severely understaffed and under-resourced. So the question becomes, will we come alongside these new neighbors and love them as scripture commands? Many may come to know him if we persist in loving them in long-term authentic friendships, not treating them as short-term projects, but loving them authentically. So what are some of the ways that we can help the Afghan newcomers? Of course, we start with prayer. We pray that each arriving Afghan will be welcomed and befriended by Christians in it for the long haul, demonstrating the love of Christ, being the aroma of Christ in their lives. We pray that the Holy Spirit will make it clear to each one of us what he expects of each of us due to the unique skills, experiences, and gifts he may have given us. Pray for the staff of the local resettlement agency. One of my good friends, a formerly a staff member of World Relief in Anne Arundel County, Maryland, now is the volunteer coordinator for the International Rescue Committee. She's working 16 hour days minimum. When I text her or email her, I usually get an answer at 2 a.m. She desperately needs our support and prayer as do every one of those caseworkers. There is a lot of um, complaining about the uh, resettlement agencies and their caseworkers, but I truly believe that that is because of the way our refugee program is set up. An average caseworker in normal times is except, expected to be serving 40 families, to have almost the sole responsibility for 40 families at one time. Now it's more like 60 families. That is a total human impossibility. And no matter how, if they work 24 hours a day and do their very best, they will still be criticized at every juncture because it's a totally impossible mission. So we should be praying for those resettlement agency staff members. Pray for government decision makers, both at the federal level and in our local communities, that they will make regulations that will be welcoming, not made out of fear, but made um, to really truly welcome those that um, in many cases risk their own lives and the lives of their families in order to help American troops and aid organizations in Afghanistan. And we should pray that the Church of Christ will not be blind to this rare moment in time and will respond instead with compassion and purpose, starting with each of us today. And if, if um, the Holy Spirit can change Saul into Paul, then the Taliban is not with, uh, outside of his reach. And we should be praying that Taliban members will come to know Christ as well. Advocate, we mentioned the Afghan Adjustment Act. Legislation of this type is very fragile. It does not move forward unless Congress persons and senators hear from their constituents who support it. And many people who oppose refugees and immigrants have their Congress persons and senators on speed dial. And those of us that support them are very quiet quite often in terms of speaking with our elected representatives. So we need to change that. We don't hesitate to speak out on matters of life. And this is quite frankly, a matter of life for many Afghans. We need to show our support. Um, and when you get these slides, those links will be live, I believe, and you'll be able to follow them 
if you choose to show your support for the Afghan Adjustment Act. We also need to be aware that many who qualify for special immigrant visas were left behind in the chaos at the last minute. We need to continually bring those, uh, bring attention to those folks, uh, to the president, to our elected representatives, and keep it in the uh, local letters to the editor um, so that it, it does not fade from people's memory. It's very um, understandable that now Ukraine is dominating the news, but at the same time, we have a duty of care for folks um, in Afghanistan, uh, many of whom uh, should have been able to come to the United States and for the rest who are facing near starvation this winter. Uh, so we, we need to find any reliable way we can to provide funds or to encourage our government to find creative ways to get food to them. Ways to act. So um, back in September of 2021, um, there was a partnership that came together of a number of national foundations and some former presidents um, to uh, create a website that would be kind of a one-stop shop because there was such an outpouring of people wanting to help. And so welcome.us was created, which is a place where you can, you can go and scroll down and indicate that you would like to be on their uh, mailing list and you'll get one or two emails a week about new resources and opportunities. Um, lots of opportunity to post jobs there or to find uh, local agencies looking for your assistance. Um, you can go to that link we showed earlier to find your closest resettlement agency. Many people have told me that they have called the local resettlement agency and gotten no return call. When I go to the website of that local resettlement agency, it asks you not to call it asks you to please use their contact form or their volunteer form. This is a time when we need to respect the ways in which those resettlement agencies can respond and realize and be charitable in, in realizing that they are totally overwhelmed. It's not a time for a long-term uh, chatty conversation with a resettlement worker. It's time to indicate uh, succinctly and specifically what you are willing to do and when you're available. We need to be patient and we need to be creative. One church I knew that had tried for uh, several months to get through to a local resettlement agency heard that the resettlement agency staff were so overwhelmed they were not taking time for lunch. And so they prepared a warm lunch and took it to the staff. It was greeted with such gratitude that they have been doing that twice a week ever since. And they are at the top of the list when that agency now is looking for volunteers to help Afghans. Prepare. So during the time that we're waiting for Afghans to become more visible in our own communities, if they have not already, or if you're not already engaged, here are some possibilities. So the Mission to North America of the Presbyterian Church in America offers a 12-hour ESL training for church volunteers. My friend Nancy Boer, who heads that program, has helped over 400 churches uh, to establish English as a second language programs. The only prerequisites are that you love Jesus, you speak English, and you care for immigrants. Um, they also have a, a two-hour webinar that you can view online to uh, learn how to assist those particular students who are not literate in their first language. And there may be many Afghans in that category. Um, there are videos that help us to learn a few phrases in Dari, uh, probably in Pashto as well, although I haven't discovered those yet. Um, and um, a former missionary to Afghanistan uh, has developed a 17-minute minute quick video on Afghan culture uh, that he has um, posted uh, for Samaritan's Purse. And I encourage you to take a look at that um, video. There are books you certainly can read, such as The Land of the Blue Burkas, um, small group Bible studies, there's a brand new one out from Women of Welcome called Far From Home that I'm told is a really good one. 
take a trauma healing course from the Trauma Healing Institute that sets trauma healing in a biblical context and brings together the best of trauma healing practices and mental health practices. Uh, Steve Moses, also a, a missionary to Afghanistan, is doing uh, trauma healing courses specifically for those working with Muslims. Um, and remember that affordable housing is a crucial need. So work within your own community to try to find apartments or townhomes that units that can be used for housing Afghans. Some churches have uh, developed welcome houses. They've used old parsonages or perhaps housing that they have available for visiting missionaries at this particular moment in time for the resettlement agencies to be able to use as transitional housing after they leave the hotels and before they can find a long-term apartment. And of course, some of the best tools for not just cross-cultural ministry, but for all ministry is attitudes of humility before God and others and an attitude of a patient learner. Give, and I encourage every evangelical to give to World Relief. It's the only one of the nine national resettlement agencies specifically associated with the National Association of Evangelicals. And while the other eight agencies have a much broader base of funding, evangelicals are the main source of funding other than the State Department for World Relief. And we have not done a good job in the past of supporting them or their nine agencies that had to close down would not have had to close down. So consider either a generous one-time gift or a monthly gift would be ideal to one of their 16 surviving local offices. Under my own denomination, Mission to the World and many missions agencies have, have uh, missions work in Clarkston, Georgia, which is known as the most diverse square mile in the United States. It is where affordable housing meets the bus lines into Atlanta for jobs. And so many uh, missions agencies have chosen to locate staff there. Uh, in many cases, they're using it as a training, a training ground for missionaries about to go abroad, uh, immersing them in many cultures and uh, then preparing to uh, do some cross-cultural learning on the ground in the US before leaving to go abroad. And in your local community, you'll want to give to your closest local refugee agency, whether that's donating furniture, donating clothing, whatever they say that they need, or whether it's donating funds, because those refugees are likely to be your neighbors in the future. Or donate to local Christian organizations serving refugees well in, in cities around the country. Uh, remember, though, that these organizations are designed to supplement rather than supplant the services provided by the resettlement agencies. But the wonderful thing about these organizations is that they are free. They have no non-proselytizing clause, but they are in it for the long haul to develop those long-term relationships that are what makes it possible for trust to be established so that people who have been through tremendous trauma are able to gradually um, understand uh, the love of Christ and be drawn to him. So of the nine national resettlement agencies, which of them still have the family sponsorship model? Many of the nine have moved away from the family sponsorship model because of that State Department non-proselytizing clause and because they realize that once they've released a family to a church, they cannot monitor that well. Maybe they've had a bad experience with a particular church that um, was aggressively evangelizing um, early on in the time after the refugee family arrived, or maybe they've had a church that overpromised and sadly underdelivered, and the resettlement agency themselves lost funding the following year because of that, because the State Department did not feel that they'd done a good job with that family. Uh, so World Relief, 
and Church World Service both have family sponsorship models, as do some of the local affiliates of Lutheran Social Services, perhaps some of the local affiliates of Catholic Charities. There may be local affiliates of some of the others, but these are the ones that I know of so far. But what can we do if there's no resettlement office nearby? I had a call from um, a, a church in um, St. Mary's County, Maryland, near the Patuxent uh, Naval Air Base, where there are many retired military, many current military who served in Afghanistan. And there were so many in that church that really desperately want to resettle an Afghan family and to love them well. However, the nearest resettlement agency is an hour and a half across a two-lane bridge. Uh, and they couldn't see their way to be able to travel to where that refugee um, family would likely be resettled. A refugee agency usually resettles within 50 miles of their local affiliate headquarters so that the caseworker can pick up and uh, take the refugee to appointments in a reasonable amount of time. And so if you're outside of that 50 mile radius, it's going to be very hard to resettle through a resettlement agency. It, there's no boundaries, geographic boundaries for praying. And I encouraged that church in Southern Maryland to partner with another church that is closer to where the refugees are actually being resettled and therefore to expand their financial capability, to expand their capability for uh, praying for that particular family and maybe once a month, uh, make a special trip up there and do something with that uh, church that's closer to the refugee family, do it with the family and with that church, develop a sister church relationship that can flourish uh, and serve the refugee family well. Advocacy and prayer and, and giving can be done from any distance. Remember I said there was no plan B for resettling refugees? Well, this situation has caused the US government to reconsider that because of the, the huge numbers arriving within a single month, they've realized that the local resettlement agencies cannot handle them alone. And so they have created two other options. One of them is called APA Community Partners that was created with some of the money from the Afghan Supplemental Assistance Act that was um, only designed for humanitarian parolees. In that particular model, a national resettlement agency that usually does no direct resettlement can hire a caseworker who will not be on the road eight hours a day, but instead will be sitting at their laptop with their cell phone, coaching local churches that will do the legwork that normally would be done by a local resettlement agency. So this is one model that might work for some churches. The other option is based on uh, the Canadian model. So Canada really has a, a twofold resettlement program. One part looks very much like the US part, a government sponsored program. The other part is a privately sponsored program where any group of four or five individuals, whether they be from a church or a book club or a ski club or a lion's club, can come together and tell the government we want to sponsor a refugee family. And the government would tell them, we would be glad to have you do so. You, in order to do so, you have to pass a background check. You need to take this training and then you need to raise $30,000 to cover the first year uh, to make sure that that refugee family is going to have housing and that any emergencies are covered. Uh, sponsorship circles does not require you to raise that amount of money, but you do need to come up with something like 2,250 per family member uh, to ensure that there are sufficient funds to provide housing until the refugee family has secured work and can start to pick up that um, housing costs themselves. And recently, Samaritan's Purse has come into the picture. Now, Samaritan's Purse is not a resettlement agency, but they have an agreement now with Church World Service for this period of time to recruit churches to resettle as many as 3,000 Afghans. 
Uh, for basic information, you can go to that link on their website. Uh, they have been looking for clusters of congregations in key cities where Samaritan's Purse staff can make presentations about this opportunity, um, it, uh, make it to a group of churches at one time and offer trainings. But this opportunity may sunset very soon. So two weekends ago, Samaritan's Purse um, alerted me that they were going to be doing a presentation in the Hampton Roads area of Virginia. I alerted our Tidewater Presbytery, which had eight churches very interested in resettling a refugee family. And they, uh, many of them were able to attend that training, came away very excited about the training that they'd had and the opportunity. And then on Monday morning, Samaritan's Purse got word that uh, from church hold service that the last of the refugees had already left the hotels and were in, or most of them had left the hotels had been assigned uh, in cases of family sponsorship had already been assigned to a family sponsor and that the only refugees that they were looking to place with family sponsors now were those coming from the bases abroad and that's a total of 5,000 of which uh, churchful service will probably be allocated only a few hundred families. And so that opportunity to resettle through Samaritan's Purse may sunset very soon. But keep in mind that as the Afghans were arriving, the U.S. government temporarily halted refugee arrivals from all other countries. They have now resumed resettling refugees from other countries. And so while there may not be an opportunity to work with an Afghan family, there may very well be an opportunity that the Lord will open to work with a family that he has preordained that your church would sponsor. And of course, in any ministry, building relationships is key. So in looking to volunteer with any resettlement agency, my recommendation would be to look for those opportunities that provide the maximum direct contact with a refugee family and make sure to show them that you are not treating them as a project, but that you care about them personally and look for opportunities to gently share how God is real in your life. Remember that Afghans pray five times a day. If you never talk about how God is active in your life, they will assume that you're probably agnostic or atheistic. Offer to pray for them and remember that authentic relationships are two ways. Afghans are known for their immense hospitality. Be sure to accept that hospitality that restores some of their dignity. I love this quote from former Muslim um, speaking at the ethics Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission Summit. He said, I do not know of a single former Muslim who became a Christian who has said to me, I was cornered in a debate. It made sense that Islam was crazy, so I became a Christian. Every former Muslim that I know, says this former Muslim, every former Muslim that I know who is a Christian, every single one of them points to a Christian who loved them. This is a uh, cover of a Christianity Today magazine from, believe it or not, 1985. And you can see I tore off the label because I've been using it in presentations since 1985. If you look at the two gangplanks, that's one huge ship. It's crossing the continent. And uh, on one side, you have a developing country. And there are the missionaries arriving with their Bibles to bring the word of God to those who have not heard about him. But look at the other gangplank. Let's say that that's the US and off that gangplank are coming hundreds of refugees and immigrants um, who have the same need for the gospel as those to whom the missionaries are going abroad. And the question that was on the 1985 cover of Christianity Today was, where are the missionaries to meet the arriving millions? It was a good question then. 
It's a greater question now when one out of four persons in the United States is either themselves foreign born or they are the minor US citizen child of an immigrant parent. How do refugees and immigrants differ from those who stay behind? They're more open to change. They're more willing to risk. They're more curious. They're redefining themselves as they transition to a new life here. They're eager for genuine American friends and they're thus generally more open to the gospel than those who remain in the homeland. And not only that, but they retain influence in their homelands via social media and eventual visits back to the homeland. And so what happens to them here will have ripple effects back into that homeland, maybe into an unreached people group. What are some of the missions benefits of local ministry to refugees and immigrants? It develops cross-cultural skills and spiritual maturity among those volunteers, equipping them for short-term mission or even long-term missions. Uh, it provides insights that enable believers here to pray with greater understanding for their missionaries abroad. And missionaries become, missions becomes organic if the person, the refugee that you're ministering to shows you a photo of their cousin on their cell phone um, who doesn't know Christ and who they long to know Christ. All of a sudden, missions has become much more organic because it's a real person that you know of rather than a theoretical person needing to know Christ. Um, the ripple effect means that uh, as refugees and immigrants eventually become believers, they will share their new faith with family and friends in the homeland. Let's say that you, have a, you are a missionary who has invested seven years of your life in an unreached, among an unreached people group. Let's say that you have found a person of peace and you have invested countless hours in ministering to them and in trying to draw them to Christ, but that they are holding back because in their view, Christianity remains a foreign religion, a Western religion. Now let's say that their cousin comes to the United States and is loved into the kingdom of God over a period of years by you or your local church. Can you imagine the effect for you as a missionary abroad now that that cousin no longer sees Christianity as strictly a Western religion, but begins to understand that Christ is for all people? There can be tremendous benefits to, the, to global missions. And these new refugee and immigrant believers may become the most effective missionaries to their own people group because they don't have to work long time to establish trust or to learn the culture or language barrier or cross the language barriers. The question is, will we have the humility to allow them to take the lead and work alongside them? So what might the Lord be calling this church to do and to learn from this particular experience? You're probably very familiar with um, missiologist J.D. Payne, who has said there's something drastically wrong with our approach to missions if at the same time that we recruit and train people to go overseas at great expense to them, their families, and to the churches supporting them in order to bring the gospel to those in other cultures. If at that same time, we're ignoring people from those very cultures that the Lord has brought to our own communities, are we willing to cross the street in, um, in addition to sending others around the world? There will always be a need until Christ returns for missionaries to go abroad, but we must not ignore what the Lord is doing in bringing the people to us. Remember, one in four persons in the U.S. right now is either foreign-born or a child growing up in an immigrant family. So are we willing to adjust in light of what the Lord is doing by bringing so many from the nations here? How we think about missions, where we do missions, who we recruit and train for missions? Will we invest in refugee and immigrant evangelists and pastors? 
And will we consider how we categorize and support those who are called to serve the unreached who are now within reach? Here is my contact information at the bottom is contact information for my friend Nancy Boer, who leads uh, Mission in North America. English as a second language. She has trained many evangelical denominations in English as a second language for churches. And in the middle is my friend Osman. And I have included Osman because he came to the US as a Somali refugee child, grew up in a Muslim family. In high school, he memorized the Quran, was awarded a trip to the Hajj, came back determined to win his high school for Islam, but his best friend and buddy, uh, his science lab partner was a pastor's son who continued to love him through sports events, through academic events, invited him in to be part of his family. And gradually over a period of three years of being loved by that family and having the opportunity to ask questions in a safe environment um, and to be loved in spite of his um, aggressive uh, 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 attempt to convert them to Islam, uh, Osman became a believer in Christ. Uh, in college, he was a member of CREW. Post-college, he was hired by CREW to work with Saudi um, international students, and he is now on the staff of a PCA church in Ohio, where he uh, serves the youth in that church and serves half-time as missionary in residence. So look what can happen if we are willing to learn to uh, love someone long-term. So I thank you very much for your attention and your prayerful consideration. These slides and many additional resources will be emailed to all of you who registered. And I believe we're ready to open for any questions you might have. Thank you so much, Pat. There are a couple of questions that have come in. I mean, it's no surprise that they're practical in nature, given how practical your presentation was. Uh, but let me read this. Uh, can you put us in touch with churches that are doing an excellent job of engaging the refugee crisis? Is there a resource that uh, people would be able to go perhaps to a local church, someone nearby that they can observe and just find out what churches are doing well with this? Um, the, the answer is a qualified yes. <laughs> so uh, among the resources you'll be getting are two of my recent newsletters, which feature some churches across the country that have begun to serve Afghans. A third newsletter will be coming out soon that will update that. Um, I have been doing this Afghan big picture uh, presentation. Um, uh, this, I think, think this may be my 26th time, <laughs> and each time there's been an amazing group of people that have tuned in. I don't know how the word has spread, but it is. So I now have a list of people around the country. Some of them are already deeply engaged through their churches in serving. Others are looking to get involved. So if there was um, a particular geographic area that you are questioning about, I would be happy to try to research that with you. Thanks. It's interesting that the questions that are coming in are related to churches. So um, one person said, can I show this webinar to the team at my church as it helps answer so many questions and help to prepare us better? Um, in other words, yes, the people will be getting a link, but are you okay with them sharing it with their local church? Yes, absolutely. I would be delighted if you do that. And an interesting comment someone made is, if you do set up a resettlement team, Make sure that you have a team of prayer partners to support you throughout the work. And I know you Absolutely. have to say that. Absolutely. Yes. So, Pat, the other thing I would ask is, um, you focus on the Afghan refugees. We've had Syrian, Afghan, and it seems though maybe Ukrainian will be the next wave, perhaps. A lot of, it seems that most of what you shared, if not all of it, would easily translate into those as well. Yes, so um, I think the understanding of the resettlement system might might be helpful, what, whatever refugee population you're going to serve. And um, uh, those of us that work for national church denominations, there's a few denominations, uh, evangelical denominations that do have um, a point person for refugee and immigrant ministry. And we're always uh, rushing to catch up with the next 
population coming in. Uh, I have a call after this with someone trying to help a Ukrainian um, who is trying to get out. So uh, we're always trying to gather those resources that can be helpful. There are now many missions organizations that during COVID discovered they could not uh, deploy missionaries abroad. And so they had people who were already trained in cross-cultural skills, and they have started uh, some missions work locally with refugees and immigrants. And I expect that some of that work will continue. Even before that, Global Gates and a few other missions organizations had already started to address the fact that the Lord had brought so many people from other nations here. So some of these resources could be helpful to you. And if you have a denomination or a missions organization that is serving refugees and immigrants, I'm sure that they will be rushing to try to get the resources you need to uh, serve and love well the next refugee population is also. Great, and we've got, we're just running out of time, but let me go ahead and throw out these last two questions that just came in. What's the difference between family sponsor to a resettlement agency and the sponsor circle? And the other one is, although we pray against it, how do we prepare if the Afghan Adjustment Act is not passed? So if you could briefly answer those, we'll wrap things up. Okay, so family sponsorship works closely with a local resettlement agency whose caseworker is doing the legwork. Sponsor Circle, you are doing the local, you, you are doing that legwork. And um, that last question, how do we prepare? That is a very difficult question because if, if no legislation is passed to allow humanitarian parolees from Afghanistan to adjust status, I, I truly fear we're gonna have many homeless Afghans. So I think we need to just work as hard as we can with our legislators to see that that legislation does get passed. For those that arrived in August who were only given one year humanitarian parole, their time, they have just a few months left of that time. And they're not right. going to get a decision on asylum if they're fortunate enough to find a, um, a, an attorney to take their case. Thanks, Pat. And without wanting to sound trite, really prayer needs to be our, our first priority for their yes. sakes. So, Pat, thank you so much. Excellent presentation. So this wraps up our webinar. Again, Pat, thanks so much. Uh, we look forward to the next webinar coming up later uh, in a couple of weeks. Uh, be sure to check out uh, the schedule for the different webinars coming up. Until the next time, we will continue to foster relationships and collaboration within the global missions community. Have a great day.